I'll begin with prayer, everybody. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together under your means of grace and learn more about you through your word. I pray, Lord, as we look again at the great things you have in store for us in the new Jerusalem, that we would want to be those who persevere for those things rather than living for this world. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to persevere through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks, Bob, for setting me up. Well, last time we left off in Revelation 21. We are in verses 21 through 22, if you recall. And there we learned that there's going to be no need for a temple in the New Jerusalem, for God will be the temple for his people. So if you think about it, the New Jerusalem itself, this 1,500 by 1,500 mile city, is going to be the city of God where the people of God have access to him, and he will be our temple. Well, now as we turn here to this very next slide, we didn't get to it. This is verse 23. We see God is not only the temple, but he's also the light for the city through his glory. Listen to what John says. Revelation 21, verses, verse 23 says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I love this passage because here we see the Shekinah glory of God is in fact the light that all of creation will be lit by. Now, remember Shekinah glory. It comes from the term in Hebrew, Shekan, which means to dwell. So the Shekinah dwelling or the Shekinah glory that you read about in the Old Testament was the dwelling glory of God. And so his very presence, because he lives in ineffable light, light that cannot be described, he is going to be the light of the entire city. And as we proceed through the narrative, we're going to see not only does he light up the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem is like a lamp. So think of God being the light bulb. Then you've got the lampshade, which is the New Jerusalem. But the light lights up the entire room, which is the universe. That's what you're going to see. Now, I also thought of, notice that it's interesting in the red, the lamb is the lamp of the city. And I thought about the verse that so many of you probably have memorized, the Psalm 119, 105, where Remember, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Well, think about Jesus Christ is the word incarnate, isn't he? And it's so beautiful that in eternity, he is going to be the light unto our path forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus Christ, the light for us forevermore. Now, I want you to also see a passage that we're going to be coming into when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and that is... Here you have Paul the Apostle praising God and his attributes. Notice 1 Timothy 6.16. He says, God is the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now notice here this description, God dwells in unapproachable light. The idea here is that this light certainly cannot be seen lest any man dies. Remember, God said that to Moses on Mount Sinai, no man can see his face and live. Well, we will not see God as he truly is until we're in our glorified state. And that's a great promise that we see in 1 John 3, 2, that we will finally see him as he is. Why? Because we will be like him. So in our glorified state, we will finally be able to be in the presence of God and see his glory as it truly is. Now, I love this idea of God dwelling in this light because it was also foreshadowed by the very features of the tabernacle. Remember, back in the tabernacle, when God instructs the Israelites to make them, all the ornaments, all of the dimensions, you have this light, this lamp, with oil that's to be burning continuously. In fact, I don't know, does somebody have the microphone here today, the... Do we have a mobile one? Oh, good, Ryan. Ryan's taking over. Thank you. Could you um, have someone read Exodus 27.20? And, uh, or you want to read it yourself. That's great. Exodus 27.20, if you'd all turn there. Here you're going to see this burning oil in the court of the tabernacles was a, a light or a flame that would burn continuously. And I think that really serves as a foreshadowing of what is true in the New Jerusalem. 
Namely, that God's light is going to be continuous and without end for his people. Yeah, so go ahead, Ryan. All right, Exodus twenty-seven twenty. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. Excellent. Thank you so much. So does everyone see there then that this light in the tabernacle foreshadowed the glorious light of the New Jerusalem? So in a real sense, you have the tabernacle or the temple on earth is always made as a foreshadowing of the ultimate reality in the heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, God said to Moses in Exodus 25:40 that he was to make everything after the pattern shown to him on the mountain. So the earthly temple, the earthly Jerusalem was always to reflect the greater glory of the new Jerusalem. Yeah, Bob. Do you think that the first Timothy 6:16 passage is it all alludes to Sinai where Moses had to be hid uh, in the rock, and there was I an do. issue about seeing God. I do, absolutely, Bob. I think that's exactly right. And that's where God says to him, look, no man can see me, literally my face, and live. And, uh, oh, we had a part that just went by. <laughs> but, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, what's so beautiful is in our glorified state, then we will be able to see God as he truly is. So think about it this way. When we see Jesus, we are seeing a mediated theophany. When Moses saw Yahweh on the mountain, it was mediated. In other words, he was hid in the cleft of the rock. In fact, a good way to render the Hebrew when he sees the glory of God is he saw the glory caboose, the trail land. If he saw God in his full orb glory, he would certainly have died. So when we're in our glorified state, then you and I will see God in an unmediated sense. We will see him truly as he is. Why? Well, because we will be perfected. We will be glorified. And so what a wonderful thing to think about. Now, I want to talk about this light because many times you'll read commentators who don't take the book of Revelation literally and they'll say, well, this is just symbolic. What I would say regarding the light and God dwelling in light is that it's both literal and symbolic. We never have to choose between the two. Let me explain why. I think God literally dwells in light. And he literally will illuminate the entirety of the cosmos, his new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem. But that's also symbolic of what? Well, because he dispels all darkness, it's also symbolic of the fact that there will be no more evil deeds. Bob often talks about the passages dealing with repentance have to do with the turning from darkness to what? To light. And think about God's universe. There'll never be any night any longer. It'll be all dispelled through the glory of God. Yes, Jessica, we'll get a microphone to you. So just hold on. So everything you say can and will be held against you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just hearing you say that made me think back to Genesis 1, where there was light before there was the sun and the moon and the stars. And then if you go ahead the mic here. That's okay. If if you go ahead to John 1, then there was the light that shines in the darkness, but he's talking about Christ. Yes. In John 1, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, including the sun and the moon and the stars. Right. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. Amen. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. So I think we see both the literal and the figurative. He exactly. was the light of the world, but there also was light before there was any other source of light. Well said. Boy, that was, yeah, free coffee. <laughs> That's an astute reading, and then you get free coffee. So if you're not a coffee drinker, then you get... Yeah, no, that's good. Very well said. And I love the point that you made regarding the Genesis 1 account. It's very accurate to say that there was light prior to the heavenly uh, bodies, namely the sun and the moon. So God certainly does dwell in light. He's the one who provides light. And it's not just the sun and the moon that gave it. He himself was the giver of light. So, yes, very good point as well regarding the both literal and the symbolic. Now, picking up on what Jessica said, what's interesting when you get into the book of Revelation, the dispelling of the night, the fact that there will be no more night, 
in the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem, the night was one of the seven evils that will no longer exist in the new creation. Now, I want to be careful when I say evil. I'm not saying that it's sinful. When you and I go out at night, we say, oh, it's dark out. This is sinful. Don't understand me that way. But the night is at variance. This is the best way to keep it in your mind. It's not that the night is inherently sinful, but it is at variance with what is optimal in the new creation. That is that there will always be light. And so these are things that are at variance with the new creation. I'll list them again to you and I'll cite the verse. The sea. Remember in Revelation 21.1, John says, and there was no more sea. Now, does that mean the sea is inherently sinful? No, but it is at variance with the new creation. It was something that had to be overcome. It was something that killed a lot of people. Look at the destruction. It's easy to say, well, I love the sea unless you've been in a tsunami or you've lost your family at, in a shipwreck or what have you, right? Or a, a sailor at sea. Everyone who's been on the water knows the power of it. So the sea will be gotten rid of death, of course. We all say, yes, death is something that's obviously at variance with the new creation. There's going to be no more death. That's Revelation 21.4. No more mourning, Revelation 21.4. No more weeping, Revelation 21.4. No more pain, uh, Revelation 21.4. Revelation 22.3 will come to this. There's no longer going to be the curse. Right now, when you and I work, we do by the sweat of the brow. We have thistles and thorns mixed in with the crop. The curse will be removed. The curse of sin, the curse of death. We also see the seventh one is the night. And that's what we're reading about here. The night itself will be dispelled. Think about, I had a professor when I was in seminary. He said, you know, much of life is an object lesson to point to the greater reality that God gives us. For example, you and I lay down to sleep and it's at night, typically. And you wake up and you're waking up to the, the dawn. I uh, remember in John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, what does Jesus say? He uses a euphemism. He says he is asleep. Now, that's certainly a, certainly a euphemism, but it's also every day, think about it. You and I, we go down to our bed, we die, and we wake up to the newness of a new day. And it really is something that God uses to show us what the ultimate reality will be like. You and I in our resurrected state will always be living in the the day. The night will be overcome. No more darkness. I can't wait for that. What a great day. Now we see here as we turn to verses 24 through 27, the nations will walk by its light. John continues, it says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, notice here in the red where it says the nations will walk by its light. The preposition by is a preposition of means. And it's simply stating that the light that comes from God that illuminates the new Jerusalem will function like a lamp for the entirety of the new creation. Now, one thing we have to wrestle with here is what does he mean by the nations? How do you have in the eternal state when every single person is a believer? Remember, all the believers back in Revelation chapter 20, excuse me, all unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20 at the white throne judgment were judged. They They were all cast into the lake of fire. So at this point in redemptive history, all you have are believers. So how do we understand then that there are nations that still exist? Well, I think there are two options. The first option is that you have believers who survive the millennial kingdom. So, for example, let's say someone doesn't have a resurrected body. They come to faith in Christ during the millennial kingdom. And remember, at the end of the thousand years, you have the battle of Gog and Magog, where all the nations gather against Jerusalem, and it's the most lopsided battle in history. Jesus Christ calls down fire. He devours his enemies, and then he sentences all unbelievers at the white throne judgment. Well, hypothetically, let's say you had a believer who survived in an unglorified state going from the millennial kingdom into the eternal states. The idea would be they would still populate 
And so you would still have people in the eternal states then that aren't in their glorified body. And they would form these nations. Now, this is just hypothetical. I don't know if that's the case. But let me just cite a passage that we have to wrestle with, I think, in order to do justice. I don't think this is... By the way, the second possibility is that only resurrected people exist in the eternal states. I think the evidence supports that. But let me show a passage that we have to wrestle with. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 20. And I'll show you why some people believe that you'll still have people in mortal bodies that can perish in the new creation. And then I'll, I'll show you why I think it's not the best reading, but let's wrestle with it. Isaiah 65, let's start in verse 17, and we'll read through verse 20. Isaiah 65, we'll start in verse 17 and read to verse 20. So now in this section here, you're going to see Isaiah's talking about this new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and certainly the new Jerusalem is also referenced. Isaiah 65, 17 through 20, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Verse 18, he says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Well, that's something, let me just stop there. That's something we saw in Revelation 21.4, that there's no longer going to be any mourning. So certainly we see corroboration from what Isaiah is recording God is going to do in the new creation and what John is saying is going to be true of the new creation. There's going to be no more mourning. But notice in verse 20, this is what we have to wrestle with. Isaiah 65, 20, it says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So notice here in verse 20, there seems to be an implication when it says that one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed, you see that there's a youth who might die at the age of 100. The idea is that there perhaps is still death in the eternal states. So the idea would be then you have certainly people who live longer than they do now. You wouldn't say someone who dies at age 100 is a youth now. You'd say they're old. But they're certainly living a lot longer than they do now, right? But that's not eternal. So that's a passage we have to wrestle with. Now here, let me give you, I think, a better reading. I think what Isaiah is doing in verse 20 is he's taking experiences that we would grieve over in this life here and now. And what he's saying is that these things will no longer exist. And so we're to focus on the positive, not the negative. For example, when he says, no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, that was a very common experience, especially in the ancient Near East. Remember, medicine, even into the 1800s, the best they could do was bloodletting a lot of times, which wasn't very helpful, right? Put a leech on a guy and see how he does. It wasn't helpful. You had kids die all the time prematurely in the early stages of their development. And so this is something that's very common, a common experience with human beings. It will no longer be that way in the eternal states. Now, to me, the key of understanding this entire passage in Isaiah is the verse 19 where he says, the voice of weeping and the sound of crying will no longer be heard. So certainly if death exists, there will be weeping. So that shows us that when we get to verse 20, what Isaiah is doing is he's not saying that there's going to be death. He's using an analogy to say what we used to experience where someone would die as a youth is no longer going to be the case. Okay? So think of it this way. There's almost an implied if. If a person would not live out his days, he'd be considered accursed. Now, that doesn't imply they won't live out their days. The implication is there's just not going to be any curse. Uh, One scholar put it this way, John Oswald. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, These are examples, he says in verse 20, drawn from this life, but that does not limit the reference here to the millennial kingdom. Nor does it mean that this picture is necessarily contradictory to the one given in Isaiah 26. Isaiah chapter 26 is where he swallows up death for all time. He says that states that death is completely destroyed. 
These examples simply illustrate that all those things that cause sorrow and that were used to show that such conditions will not exist in the new heavens and in the new earth, unquote. I think that that's the better reading. So I don't think death is implied in verse 20. Therefore, let's get back to the idea. Who comprises the nations that are going to be walking by the light? Well, they're going to be resurrected believers. And that shows us, I think, that yes, even in the new creation, there are still going to be nations. And this is a grand fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, 3? In you, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. I'll bless those who bless thee, and I'll curse those who curse thee. All of the nations who are believers, who trust in Jesus Christ, are going to be blessed, and they will walk by the light given by the very glory of God dwelling in the New Jerusalem. I think that that's how we're to understand it. Now, there's another passage that alludes to this, that all nations will still exist in this new creation, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 66, just one chapter later. Isaiah 66, I've got a lot on here, but let me just read this. We'll do a little reading today. Isaiah 66, verse 19 through 24. Isaiah 66, verses 19 through 24. Now, the reason I'm going to be reading this to you is I want you to see that nations were to be incorporated into this new creation. That this isn't something that's brand new to the book of Revelation, but it was foretold by the prophets long ago. Isaiah said this, he said, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, Javan. By the way, these are all coastlands that would surround Israel. To the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Verse 20, it says, Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as, now here we have a simile, as a grain offering to the Lord. So stop there. Here you see this promise that one day all the nations are going to be brought to Yahweh like you would a grain offering. Now it doesn't mean they are a grain offering. It's like a grain offering. They're going to be an offering to the Lord, all of these nations that exist. Now he says... In verse 21, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Verse 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares Yahweh, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it, will, it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says Yahweh. Now notice verse 24, this is the very end of the book of Isaiah. Then they will go out, go, excuse me, they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's a reference to those, too, I believe, who are in the lake of fire. All of the unregenerate in Revelation 20 at the white throne judgment will be those who experience eternal torment. But nonetheless, you see that the nations are incorporated in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, etc. It's part of the, crea- the new creation. Now, any questions or comments thus far? Any thoughts? Show ideas? All right. Now, one thing I want to point out here again, notice the phrase that you have in verse 25. Parenthetically, John says again, for there will be no more night. Again, the night is not an evil, but it is at variance with what is optimal in the new creation, that no longer is there going to be darkness, both literal and symbolic. Notice also in the box here, you see that its gates will never be closed. I love that. This shows us that there's going to be complete security for the people of God. One of the great desires for the people of Israel is that they'd be able to dwell securely. It's never occurred. They're always under a threat. But here in the New Jerusalem, The gates won't even have to be closed. Why? Because all enemies and all sin have been put down. That happened already back at the final judgment, at the white throne judgment of God in Revelation 20. Now, one other thing that symbolizes the fact that the gates will never be closed, it symbolizes that we also have access. Now, again, it's both literal and symbolic. We always have access to God. We always have access to him. In fact, that access that we always have to God began the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ. 
The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, everything changed. You didn't have access. You were far off from the promises of God. But the moment you believed in him, your sins were forgiven and you had access to the throne of grace. Now, I want to show you a passage that we studied in Romans that teaches us that very thing. This happens at conversion. Turn your Bibles to Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Oh, are you? Are you going to have that in your sermon? It's going to be part of my application of Romans 5.1. Oh, that's great. Is it going to be the, the idea of access? or? No, it's going to be about the fact that... Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, in our sermon today, one of my applications is there's a confusion about what peace means. Oh, sure. And peace with God, uh, really in reconciliation with God, has to do with reconciled enemies. Right. Because there's a range of meanings that often... People confuse that and they think it's just a psychological state. Right, I have peace. There's no turmoil good. in my mind. Right. Yeah, okay. but anyhow, so. Well, very, you know what's so interesting? Be a preview. Yeah, exactly. You know what's so neat is Bob and I, we don't always say, hey, you teach this and I'll teach this. It's so neat to see the. Oftentimes, Bob will be doing something in Sunday school and it'll come up in the sermon again because in God's providence, he, uh, he does that. And also, all scripture is inspired. And so we often hit the same thing. So I, I love that. Oh, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead, Bob. Thank you for setting me up here. Now, one thing I want to point out, again, in Romans 5, 1 through 2, we have access that we didn't have before conversion. Notice the language. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, and that's what Bob's going to be focusing on, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. We're no longer enemies. We were enemies under the very wrath of God, but the moment you trusted in Jesus, you're justified, you have atonement, you have his declared righteousness. Dikaio in the Greek, you're literally declared righteous in his sight forevermore. Therefore, you're no longer enemies. But notice verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In the book of Hebrews, we are the ones who uniquely have access to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. That's something that's only for believers. Do you realize that when the pagans pray, they're not heard by the living God? That's a unique right that belongs to the children of God who are justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So the moment you believe, you have access. And this access, when you're in the eternal states, is going to be so grand that the entirety of the new creation will be your playground. You'll be able to partake of the new heavens, the new earth, and also go see your God in the New Jerusalem, you will always have access. Um, last night, my little boy, he came down to talk to me about some important things regarding his little uh, football game that he was playing. And I was working on my sermon, and I was in this section, or this little message here, and I thought about how precious it is for him to have access. That dad's door is open. And you all know what that was like when you're a kid, that to have access to your parents, how precious that is. That's always available for us now. But it will be exceedingly visible and evident in the new creation. As believers in Jesus Christ, we'll always have access to him. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice here in verse 27, it says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever enter into it. Only holiness will be part of the new Jerusalem. No one who is unclean, literally the term unclean, koinos, meaning common, will ever come in to the New Jerusalem. There will be no more sin, no one who rebels anymore. Now, we have to remember back in Revelation 21.7, this is a promise given to the saints. Let me just cite that. Revelation 21.7, God said, He who overcomes will inherit these things, that's the new creation, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Okay, so how is it that you overcome and you end up being a partaker of all of the blessings of the new creation? Well, remember, we learned that in 1 John, just jot this down, 1 John 5, 4 through 5. It's the one who believes in Jesus because it's our faith, it says, that has overcome the world. So you're an overcomer, not by doing something, not by trying to try harder, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but you're an overcomer exclusively through faith in Jesus because Jesus overcame the world for you. So that's another indication then that only believers 
will be partakers of this glorious kingdom. Now, by the way, when we see here that there's going to be no more evil, that's ultimately the answer to the problem of evil. I often hear people say, well, I can't believe in a God who allows evil to exist. Oftentimes, atheists will try to put us in a dilemma. They will say, if your God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something about evil? So either your God is not all-powerful or he's not good. Because if he were all-powerful, he'd certainly do something about evil. So if he is all-powerful and he doesn't do something about evil, he must not be good. That's the quandary that they try to put us in. But the biblical answer is God allows evil for a time so that he can conquer it, so that he can use it, so that he can destroy it. Therefore, what? Well, in Romans chapter 9, remember, we saw God was glorified by both those that he saved and those that perished. It's both and. And so just think if God never allowed any evil to, to come about in his universe, certainly we would always give him glory for being a good and righteous God. But we would never get to see his attributes of mercy, his attributes of grace, like we do when we see him put down evil. Uh, Think about this, the common example of you and I when we're sick. You don't know how wonderful it is to feel good unless you've been sick. You know, for people who have never had to work, perhaps they inherit a lot of money. The weekend doesn't mean much to them or having a day off. Why? Because they've never had to work. But when you work hard and you feel tired, the day off is so sweet. You see, what God is going to do in the new creation is going to take all of the evils that ever occurred and we'll be able to say, you remember what it was like back then? But look at it now. And he's going to get all the more glory. So what God is doing with evil is he's actually going to use it to bring about the best possible good. He's going to use it for his glory. God triumphs over evil, he destroys evil, and he uses evil redemptively. That's the power of our great God. And so the problem that, look, God is either all-powerful and chooses to do nothing with evil, or he's not powerful enough to do anything about evil, that's a false dilemma. We can cut the Gordian knot and say our God uses evil for the greater good, to triumph over it and to show his glory. Okay, now, I want to show you that the nations will indeed come into the gates, and the gates will always be open continuously. This is a great promise that we saw back in the prophets. Let me show you a passage that I think John is alluding to that we just read, and that's Isaiah 60, verse 11, where it says, Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Notice this phrase, your gates will be open continually. That's what we just saw on the previous verse, did we not? So this is a promise that we saw 700 years prior to the first advent of Jesus Christ. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem was really being alluded to the fact that God would always be worshipped, that the nations would one day come to see him. Now, there's a passage in Isaiah 60 that I just referenced here What's very neat is in Isaiah chapter 60, there's a huge chiasm. Bob and I have showed you chiasm where the midpoint of the chiasm is the central thesis. The central thesis of the chiasm in Isaiah 60 is that the Abrahamic blessing, that God was going to be blessing those who bless Israel, and he's going to curse those who curse them, that is ultimately fulfilled in the new creation. The new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem. The key ask, the central point of this whole passage is Isaiah 60, verse 12, which happens one verse after this. Listen to what it says. It says, For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. There it is. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. The new Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. The promise that God would bless those who have the faith like Abraham and trust in the God of Jacob, that great promise is ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now, I want someone, if you could, uh, Ryan, could you give the mic to somebody or you look up Genesis 12.3. I just want to read some of these Old Testament passages that talk about the blessing that would come to Abraham. Would somebody read Genesis 12.3 for us? Any volunteers? Oh, Jen, next to you there. 
Thanks, Ryan. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 12.3. We're just going to read some of these promises given to Abraham. Then we're going to see that they're fulfilled ultimately in the promise of the new Jerusalem. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Genesis 12.3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth you will be blessed. So notice there at the very end of verse 3 of Genesis 12, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's the great promise that ends up being fulfilled in the new creation, that all the nations will end up coming where? They'll come to the new Jerusalem. So it's not just Israel. When this was written in Isaiah's day, that was verboten. It was forbidden to think that somehow the goyim, these foreign nations, would ever be partakers of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in the new creation that we're reading about today in the new Jerusalem, yes, they will be partakers. You and I, the moment we trusted in Jesus, we were grafted into the promises given to Israel. We will be partakers of the new Jerusalem. That was prophesied in the prophets like Isaiah. Um, one more verse I want to read from the Old Testament. Could somebody read Genesis twenty-seven twenty-nine? I just want you to see that this is a promise of the blessing of Abraham to the nations that you'll see all over the Old Testament. Thanks, Nancy. This is Genesis 27, 29. Now, before you read this, remember, this is where Jacob is pretending to be Esau. Remember, he puts the hair on his back. His father feels him, Isaac. So here he's stealing the firstborn blessing, the inheritance rights, but he's the one who's going to be blessed. This is the blessing given to Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 29. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Notice the end there, what Nancy just read. Cursed be those who curse though, curse you. All those who don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ comes from whom? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. So for those who don't come to Christ, they're cursed. But for those who come to faith in Christ, they're going to be blessed. That's how this ends up working out in history. So all of the nations then were really promised, even back in the law itself, that they'd be partakers of this new creation that God was going to bring about. Yes, Brian. If Isaiah 60:11 is a glimpse into the future, yeah. could you explain why it refers to night? Yeah, you know, the, the idea, what's interesting when you look at, for example, a lot of these promises that are given about the eternal states, they first are foreshadowed also in the millennial kingdom. So, for example, the nations, even in the millennial kingdom, they're also going to be flowing in to Jerusalem to pay homage to God. In fact, remember in Zechariah chapter 14, the nations that would not go up and honor Yahweh in the millennial kingdom they are not going to have rain sent upon their land. God will withhold it. So that shows you that there still will be rebels who don't believe in God during the millennial kingdom. In fact, that's a great segue. Notice this next verse I wanted to put up, Ezekiel 44, 9. The reason I'm putting this verse up is this is not the eternal states. This is a reference here to the millennial kingdom. That's that 1,000-year reign on the earth by Christ. So here, the Jerusalem isn't the heavenly Jerusalem, it's the Jerusalem on earth. And there's going to be an earthly temple that Messiah reigns out of. But notice the, the, the link here, Ezekiel 44, 9. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. The great promise was that in the millennial kingdom, no evil will ever go into. That's what we saw in the new Jerusalem. There's not going to be any evil that ever goes in to the new Jerusalem. Well, this is being foreshadowed in the millennial kingdom. So in the millennial kingdom, you'll still have day and night. You'll still have seas. You're not going to have those things, of course, in the new creation. So I just want you to see that the great promise that one day all of the nations will flow up to Jerusalem, it's not just during the millennial kingdom that that happens, but it's ultimately fulfilled in the eternal states. And I hope that that's clear, that the great promise given to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled then. So, very exciting. Now, I want you to consider then that the new creation 
is really our playground as believers dwelling in our resurrected bodies. I want you to consider a passage that alludes to this. 2 Peter 3.13, Peter says, But according to his promise, that's God's promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I love the term here for looking for. Notice in red, the term in Greek is literally prostokeo, which means we are expecting. Every believer should be one who is expecting the new heavens and the new earth. Now, let's just take an inventory here for just a moment. How many here the last week, and just you don't have to raise your hand, but just think to yourself, every day that you get up as a believer in Christ, you think, well, I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) Now, some of you may be saying that more to yourself now than ever. I don't know. But I tell you what, it should be on our minds. This should be where our hope is. What's so beautiful to me is that this idea of the new heavens and the new earth isn't just some peripheral, well, that's a pie-in-the-sky pipe dream. It's the centrality of our hope. It's what we're looking for. Why? Because that's going to be our home, not just for a while, not just even for a thousand years like the glorious millennial kingdom. It's going to be for eternity. We're to be those who expect it. So the way this relates to our walk in being those who live godly lives is that if you really believe that this new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem are going to come about, you'll forsake sin here and now. When you and I sin, it really is a way of saying, I don't trust that these promises are coming. I'm going to try to get all I can now. That's the key. That's why Bob, when he talks about sanctification for the years and years that he's taught us, what's the key to it? Believing the promises of God. If you believe the promises of God, you'll live for those things, not the fleeting pleasures of sin. So think about Jesus' words. Let me cite to you Jesus' words. And I think this relates to this longing for the new heavens, the new earth, which are certainly going to come. Jesus said in Matthew six nineteen through 21, he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now notice verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, There was a story I wanted to share with you. It's something that always stuck in my mind. I was learning Hebrew from a man named Jason DeRoshi. He was a godly professor at Northwestern College. And he was giving us a story about living for this coming kingdom. And he talked about his young boys. And he was at a grocery line. And these little boys that he has, they looked at, um, they were just magazines. You know how you go to a grocery line, you have all the People magazines and various, the Inquirer, all the magazines that you never buy, but you always see them there. They're always there. And, uh, well, what happened is his little boys, there were scantily clad women in one of the magazines. And these are just little guys, you know, they're, and they're just looking. And he warned them, though, and I love it. He, he took them aside. He said, boys, I want to let you know that the first look is for free, the second one will cost you. And what he was getting at is he pulled them aside. He said, do you want to live to look at those things or do you want to live for the new Jerusalem? Do you want to live for the kingdom to come? I don't know if he talked about the new Jerusalem specifically, but his point was if you want to live for the king and his kingdom, this type of immorality you have to put out of your your purview because we want to be those who live for the coming kingdom. What are you going to live for? Are you going to live for treasures here and now? There are a lot of treasures. There's enjoyment. You know, that's one of the lies people say, well, ultimately sin isn't pleasurable. Oh, yes, sin can be pleasurable. The only problem is it's fleeting. It will perish. It will be put down. But not so with the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It really is the key to our sanctification. Listen to what it says about Abraham. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. Notice the focal point of where he put his faith In the promises of God, notice specifically what he focused on, according to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
fellow heirs of the same promise. Let me stop there. Isn't it interesting when we consider what the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 9? He was a stranger in that land. Do you know that Abraham never owned a single square foot of land in Israel except the cave that's in the district of Hebron? It's called Machpelah. That's where he buried his wife. That's where he himself was buried. That's the only land he had was the burial chamber. So he owned nothing in the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that to say, well, how could he do it? Day after day after day, he walked through a land that he had no part of. And yet that was going to be his promise. Well, here in verse 10, we see it says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for what? The new Jerusalem. That was the focal point of his faith. Notice how many times faith is alluded to. It was by faith. It's exactly what Bob has been teaching this congregation for how many years, Bob? 30, 40 years. Believe the promises of God. That's how Abraham persevered. That's how you and I are going to persevere. Looking forward to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Yeah, Bob. We just, you know, had an election. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of unrest and violence. Have you seen some of the stuff going on? It's terrible. With Antifa yeah, and, yeah. and throwing things through windows. And uh, One of the things that I noticed in my research is that people who think that they're going to find heaven on earth through politics have no other hope. Right. And so if they think they might not get what they want now, they want to start revolutions or they want to do some you know, wicked thing because they don't have any hope but heaven on earth. But the utter irony of it, if you study history, is the various programs that were supposed to create that have always created something closer to hell on earth (laughs) than heaven on earth. Exactly. And the reason for that is that human beings are fallen and sinful. Okay? And the more power is concentrated in the hands of a few people, the more they're able to execute their sinful agenda. I read a great book called Nazi Oaks by Mark Musser, a fantastic book. I uh, just was showing it to my grandson. I noticed there's 1,350 footnotes, so it's very scholarly. Wow. But it's explaining how the Nazis were supposedly green. Yeah. And I was talking to my grandson about that, that uh, they wanted to have this green utopia for the, the Volk, which means the people, the Germanic people were going to have a paradise. But all these other peoples were seen as the enemy. Yeah. And they had to be conquered and vanquished or killed to create green space for Hitler's plan for this national socialism right. to be the Third Reich or another Roman Empire in another right. millennium. And what they got was a lot closer to hell than heaven. Yeah. And it's almost ironic that this green paradise turned into scorched earth. Wow. Because they weren't... They, he, was, he hated biblical Christianity as well as Judaism. And so I did finish that book. I want to write a review of it. But we need to realize that, that one of the ways the promises of God sanctify us is that we aren't bitter, angry people because things aren't perfect. Right. And we don't expect it to be. What we hope for is an eternal hope through the promise of God. And we, if we don't focus on the promises of God and start focusing on well, some politician didn't give me what I want, then we'll just get angry and bitter. And even uh, I have to tell myself that or remind myself that not one single person I voted for <laughs> won. Zero. I Zero. know. That's right. But yeah. I did vote for a few judges that were unopposed, so I assumed they got one vote they win. So I'm obviously thinking quite differently than everybody else. But see, I'm not, I do, I'm not losing my chance for peace yeah. or blessing or joy or any of those things 
because, okay, I'm going to live and pay my taxes and be a good citizen. That's what God told us to do. But those things that we really need come from the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy come from the Holy Spirit. And no no politician can remove the Holy Spirit from a Christian. So let's all just have some peace. Right. Wow. By God's grace. And we can still stand up for what we believe and contend for things. Paul did so in front of rulers and leaders and what have you. So we don't lose our voice, but we shouldn't lose our peace either. Amen. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Saturday, when um, uh, some of us women gathered at the library for prayer, you're much stronger than me because this whole election thing really threw me in the ditch for a little bit because nobody I voted for won either. (laughs) And so then Beth reminded us of Habakkuk. And he wasn't happy with what was going on either. And so we started reading that and realized that the same thing was going on then that is going on now. And he turned his eyes back up to the Lord and looked back at who he was. Who was the Lord? What did he do? How did he take care of us? And it brought us, me, right back up again. It was a... I needed to hear. Wow. Well said, Judy. Yeah, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And you remember Habakkuk cries out, what is God going to do with these rebellious Israelites? And then God says, yeah, he's going to make it worse. He's going to send the rebellious Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And Habakkuk was in despair. And so that book really shows us that the ultimate promise is found in messianic salvation. And it's always been God's plan. The just shall live by faith. The untold damage that has been done by those who believe, just as Bob said, they're going to bring utopia to earth. Think about the Marxist. I love uh, Ronald Reagan's famous line. He says, you know, communism only works in two places, heaven where they don't need it and hell where they already have it. That was his famous line. He was really witty, wasn't he? These utopian movements never bring peace and prosperity, as Bob said. They always bring hell to earth. Uh, It's interesting, as you're talking about the Nazi movement, remember, what were they claiming? A thousand-year Reich. Well, isn't that somewhat similar to the thousand-year reign of Christ? It's really a millennial movement. Marxism that you see half of your country voting for is a utopian movement. That through the evolution and process of taking from the bourgeoisie, the haves, of giving to the proletariat, the have-nots, they're going to create some form of utopia. Well, in the book of Revelation, what they end up creating is Babylon. Babylon under a borderless world, and that's going to be thrown down. You see, Karl Marx hated borders, just like Hillary Clinton. Why did he hate borders? Because he wanted to break everyone down between the haves and the have-nots. All the workers of the world unite, he said. Well, you can't do that. You can't unite all the workers of the world, the proletariat, if people have national identity. That's the problem. So this whole Marxist movement that Bob is referring to, that, again, we didn't vote for, it really is promising utopia. And when they don't achieve it, they become violent. But we are the people, as Bob reminded us, who are saying, no, our utopia comes not here or now, but when Christ breaks through the, the clouds for us to rapture us and to bring us home. The other thing I was thinking about is uh, I think it's important to realize when you, especially if you have kids or grandkids or going out into colleges, Nazism is considered a right-wing phenomenon. Do you notice what Bob mentioned from the book that he was reading? What's it called, Oaks? Uh, Nazi Oaks. Nazi Oaks. I, I highly recommend it. It's called Nazi Oaks. It's very scholarly. Primary source, for instance, Heidegger, the first... Uh, philosopher to be called postmodern. Yeah, yeah. Was Hitler's primary philosopher. Exactly. And uh, Musser cites table talk, direct primary source quotations from Hitler himself. Yeah. And then many of his leaders and fo- uh, primary thinkers. It's all in that. It's a big, thick book, but it's just a fantastic book. Yeah. And People need to know what Nazism was because they don't understand it. Right. They don't understand. There were two versions of romantic idealism. This came from German philosophy back to Hegel. There were two versions of it. There was national socialism in Germany, 
which yes. was based on race and this master race idea, but it still came from Hegel and his followers. Exactly. Then the Marxist version was in the USSR, what right. became that, and that was based more on Marx's interpretation of Hegel. So you had two interpretations of Hegel, the Nazi one and the Marxist one, and Hitler killed millions of people, and Stalin killed even more people. Yeah. Two versions of German rationalism, idealism, and romanticism. How romantic is it for all these people to die? <laughs> right. Nazi hoax is about this. As the Jew, they had stricter rules for how cattle were treated on uh, uh, trucks than they applied to Jews going to the execution. Right. The cattle had more rights than the Jews. The, the road to one of the places of the Holocaust was lined with oak trees, beautiful oak trees. But where, when they got to their destination, they had crematoriums to burn and execute the Jews. So there's this irony called Nazi oaks, green death. Yes. Humans are expendable other than the master race. So every time you look for utopia in history, we've always got millions of people dying. Well said. And so don't be deceived. There's no heaven on earth. And there's no millennium until Jesus Christ himself Amen. is ruling on the face of the earth. And it's not the Christian church's job to create some kind of a millennium yeah. by us ruling, because that's not turned out any better. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Reconstruction. all the people that the Roman Catholic Church killed in the name of Christ, because they thought if we rule, then it'll be good. Well, no, sorry. we don't. Trust any king but Jesus, and he's not here yet. Amen. Well said. Yeah, um, yeah, Tom. Yeah, he was also an environmentalist. Yeah. He was also very big into animal rights. Yeah. And he was also considered by Goebbels also a vegetarian. And so he hated uh, killing animals, but he'd kill human beings. Right. And, well said. Uh, just amazing. Tom, thank you so much. Think about it. Your kids are going to go to college, and they're going to hear that Nazism was a right-wing phenomenon who is it that murders the innocent unborn but is green? It's the left. When Adolf Hitler got mad in the 1936 Olympics, remember Jesse Owens won the 100 meters? Well, he beat the supposed, the supposed Aryan race. Why did Hitler believe that the Aryan race should win? Because he believed in macroevolution that came from Darwin. Now, who teaches Darwinian evolution, a left-wing professor or a right-wing conservative evangelical? Oh, you see what I'm saying? Bob mentioned Martin Heidegger, postmodern epistemology. Postmodern epistemology says that truth cannot be accessed. Who teaches that, left-wing professors or right-wing conservative evangelicals who say no, truth can be accessed? Okay, time and time again, all the doctrines of the Nazi party are not adopted by right-wing conservative evangelicals, but by the left-wing intelligentsia within the United States today. And we have to be those who equip our kids to say, no, don't buy into it. The, the nationalism that you see proposed today is not a nationalism based on race. It's based on values. Hitler's was based on race. It's okay to say, look, if, oh, I don't want people who believe in Sharia law, that that should be the law of the land. I don't want them coming here. That's a judgment based not on race because they look different. It's based on values. That type of nationalism is fine. Why? Because God ordained the borders of the nations. And the borders of the nations were designed by God to restrain evil. That's the role of government. Biblical government, think about it, it all boils down to our political divide over two R's. Do you want government to restrain evil? Romans 13, 4, the government does not bear the sword in vain. That's what they're there for. Or do you want it to redistribute wealth? Redistribution of wealth is all about what? Bringing heaven to earth, utopia, just as Bob was saying. So that's the role of government. You want it to do the one R or the other. You want it to restrain evil, or do you want it to redistribute wealth? Um, I think about Joshua's words, choose, O day, O Israel, whom you'll serve, but me and the Lord, or me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's really the choice for America. Choose which R you'll have. 
But for me and my house, I'm voting for the biblical mandate of government. It's to restrain evil. So with that, uh, thank you, Bob, for the contribution and all of those of you that shared. But let's bow our heads in prayer and just thank God that we do have this glorious hope to look forward to. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we as your people can call upon your name and that we have access to your throne of grace and we will have it forevermore in the new Jerusalem. We thank you for these promises. I pray, Lord, that we'd be those who don't get frustrated and bitter for the lack of perfection here and now. We'd be those who lift our head up high, looking for the coming of your glory when Christ breaks through the clouds to take us home. We thank you for these things. Help us to persevere now in Jesus' name. Amen.